I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Revealing the hidden secrets of the sea. This is Naked Oceans. This month on Naked Oceans, we're looking into some of the ways we trade the oceans. We'll be giving our pick of some of the top marine species that are bought and sold across the world, including coral jewellery, sea cucumbers and even luxury fish lips. And we'll find out what impact this is all having on ocean life. I'll be calling in on an aquarium that breeds seahorses and find out how you go about mailing these delicate fish around the world. We um, put it in a bag of water, one-third really clean water, two-thirds pure oxygen. I put three to four seahorses in a bag and I give them a toy to hitch on to and it's kind of like their protection. And we find out how parts of the ocean may soon be traded as carbon credits, tapping into the amazing ability of the ocean's green edges to lock away carbon dioxide. Hello, I'm Helen Scales, and with me is Sarah Caster-Perry. Hello. We'll also be catching up with another marine expert and asking them to choose our Critter of the Month. They, uh, they have a funny way of eating. They uh, have very large heads, and basically their mouth is a net, and they catch plankton. And the things that they feed on are about the size of a flea. Keep listening to find out who that was and if they could be a marine critter, which one they'd like to be. If you have any questions, do get in touch. You can tweet us at Naked Oceans or email us. The address is nakedoceans at thenakedscientist.com. Supported by the Save Our Seas Foundation, this is Naked Oceans on the web at nakedscientist.com slash oceans. You're listening to Naked Oceans with Helen Scales and Sarah Castor-Berry, and we're talking trading the oceans. Coming up, we'll meet some seahorses in Florida and find out how captive breeding is offering an alternative to catching them from the wild. But first, this month saw the launch of a major new report on coral reefs. Reefs at Risk Revisited has compiled a detailed global map of the problems these vital ecosystems are facing today. The report was launched this month at a special meeting at the Royal Society in London, and I went along to meet some of the people behind the report. Well, the main headline findings are, I'm afraid to say, rather depressing. One of the report authors is Mark Spaulding from The Nature Conservancy. The the, the top headline is that 75% of the world's coral reefs are now threatened by human actions. Um, That includes a combination of the direct impacts of people on reefs, things that that we can control really at relatively local levels. Uh, Those direct impacts are affecting just over 60% of the world's reefs. When we factor in recent climate change, this is um, what's happened to date, not the future, um, that pushes our number up to 75% of the world's reefs. Another headline that we that we, we looked at was predictions of the impacts of future climate change. And we um, sat those, if you like, on top of the results of, of threat to date. And they, they become extremely gloomy. By the, by the 2030s, we're up to 80% of the world's coral reefs being threatened. And by the 2050s, we're at 99%. You can't stick your head underwater everywhere around the world. There's too much. There's not enough scientists. Some of these places are very remote. 
So instead, we've built a model which predicts how much is threatened. And we've had that verified by hundreds of scientists from around the world. And in terms of what's causing those this risk to, to reefs, what are the threats we're looking at? What are reefs suffering from today? Uh, it's a huge host of threats, really, and quite often one piled on top of the other. Though The biggest one is certainly unsustainable fishing, just taking too much and sometimes taking it in extremely damaging ways using explosives to catch fish. Uh, on top of that, we have what's washing off the land. We have um, sediments and pollutants just being washed out of agricultural areas um, from deforested slopes into rivers and out to the reefs. So that's kind of the watershed threat. And then we've got coastal development. I mean, human populations are, are burgeoning everywhere, but particularly in the coastal zone. Um, and as buildings are built and sewage is pumped into the ocean, that, that's a huge threat. And the final local threat is, is shipping and other sources of marine pollution, oil and gas installations, boats crisscrossing the oceans and so on. And sadly, what we've, what we've added to that already, that sort of long litany of threat, is, um, is the issue of, of changing climate, changing oceanography, and talking about reefs at risk, what does that what does that really mean? Are we talking that the reefs that are at risk aren't going to be here in a number of years' time? How do we sort of get a handle on what, what that actually means in, in the real world? We need to remember this is a model. We're trying to predict the condition. And if you stuck your head uh, under the water in many of these places, you'd see different things. Um, in some cases, it is a measure of, of things already declining. But in all cases, it's a measure of a potential for decline that could be any day now. I mean, the pressures are immense. Mark Spalding there, introducing the key points raised by the Reefs at Risk Revisited report about the threats facing coral reefs today. Well, this new report follows on from a previous Reefs at Risk report that originally took on the challenge of painting a global picture of coral reef threats. Christian Telecki chaired the Reefs at Risk Revisited launch, and I spoke to him about how the whole thing got started. Uh, Reefs at Risk started in uh, 1996, 1997, when a number of scientists got together and were concerned that, that they weren't having enough information about all the things that were happening around the world on coral reefs. So they got together and thought, let's put this analysis together and we'll, we'll do a quick assessment of the entire world's reefs and are they at threat based on these different levels of threat indicators. And uh, that came up with some really useful statistics and it actually boiled it down to these two or three key statistics that were cited over and over again. And we know that over 400, it's been cited over 400 times in the scientific literature, but it's been cited thousands and thousands of times. And, and I remember seeing this constantly being recycled in the press, in the media, about these, these statistics. And so really it was, it was in thinking um, in my previous job as the director of the International Coral Reef Action Network that this was a great opportunity to revisit these statistics and update them because a lot has changed both uh, in the ecosystems, in the climate, um, and at the political level. And so it was really important to, to go back and have a look at this, but also not only compare the statistics, but revisit some new nuances about social vulnerability, climate change, ocean acidification, these key threats to, to uh, importance of, of coral reefs. So um, it really was the revisited that, that we thought that this would make a really interesting story to revisit these old statistics. And I assume that generally, am I right, that the changing picture since 98 is one that's generally worse? Sure, I think there's been a, a general net decline in reef health. There's no doubt about that. I mean, you know, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to go out and look and see that there's, a, there's an impact. I think the message is that it's, it's not a straightforward story. I remember when we did work in the Seychelles in 1998 during the peak of the bleaching event, we went out and surveyed the southern Seychelles, and we actually found that there was a lot of uh, heterogeneity 
um, and mixed responses in terms of the bleaching event. You had some reefs that bleached and some that didn't. Some died, some didn't. And in fact, that told a very interesting story because when we came back, the big story was all reefs were dying in Indian Ocean. Well, that wasn't actually true. So I think what this what this report highlights is that there are pockets and areas that are resilient for one reason or another. They're doing well for one reason or another, and we really need to look at those very carefully as potential you know, seed banks for other parts of the other parts of the ocean. So yes, while the net the net message is, is a depressing one. I think we're finding more and more cases where there are areas of hope, and we really need to look at those carefully because we can, we can do something about it. That was Christian Telecki from SeaWeb telling me about how reefs at risk got started and why he thinks there's definitely still room for hope when it comes to the future of coral reefs. Now, you can hear a longer version of that Reefs at Risk Revisited feature, including interviews with other people behind the report. I talked to the Jamaican High Commissioner to the UK about what this report means to people in his country. And I catch up with explorer and TV presenter Paul Rose to find out his thoughts on the importance of reefs in this new report. That's all at thenakedscientist.com forward slash specials. And you can check out the Naked Oceans webpage for more information about the Reefs at Risk Revisited report, including a link to the report itself, which is free to download. And you'll also find out more about this episode of Naked Oceans and all the others. That's thenakedscientist.com forward slash oceans. From seagrass to sunfish, dugongs to diatoms, this is Naked Oceans. This month on Naked Oceans, we're diving into the many ways that we trade the oceans because there are all sorts of marine species that become incredibly valuable and sought after once they've been caught and brought onto land. And where there's lots of money to be made, people will, of course, go out and catch as much as they can until wild stocks start running out. We thought we'd give you a bit of a rundown of some of the highest price tags in the oceans. So, Helen, what have we got to start off with? Well, a lot of the top-priced ocean wildlife is, as you might guess, stuff that we eat. And some of it is really quite weird. I did my PhD on a giant denizen of coral reefs called the humphead wrasse. And yes, the adult males do have big bumps on the heads. Um, Some people say that they're ugly, but I happen to think that they're really very beautiful. Um, And in Asia, they are something of a delicacy. They feature in restaurants lined with aquarium tanks packed full of live fish so that diners can pick out the fish they want to eat just moments after it's been whisked out of a tank. One of the big problems is that uh, many large reef fish, like humphead wrasse, are caught using cyanide. Divers swim down, squirt just enough cyanide to stun a target fish, and then they bring it back up to the surface and hope that it revives. And the thing is that cyanide lingers on the reef where it kills all sorts of other marine life, and it's one of the destructive fishing methods highlighted by the Reefs at Risk Revisited report um, as being one of the top threats to reefs. I mean, cyanide is, you know, it's very Agatha Christie, dastardly murder. I mean, that's not exactly the sort of thing that you'd think you'd want to put onto a reef. That doesn't sound like a very good idea at all. I mean, I know you worked on them, but have you ever tried eating humphead wrasse? Are they nice? Do they taste good? Um, well, actually, no, I haven't tried them. I always said that I wouldn't pay my own money to buy one because um, that just felt wrong. But if someone offered it, then I would give it a go. But that never happened. So no, I haven't tried them. I heard they, you know, obviously people do like them. Um, and the ultimate luxury, which is really weird, I think, is a plate of their lips. They sell for hundreds of dollars. The males, these huge males, because they change sex, they start life as females, become males as they get bigger. Um, and they have these enormous lips. And people like to eat their lips. Weird. Very gross, I think. Um, But uh, there's another luxury seafood with a really high price tag that I have tried. um, And that's sea cucumbers, um, those tubular relatives of starfish. 
Well, funnily enough, because I have actually tried sea urchins, which are another relative of the sea cucumber, and I tried them in Japan, and they were very strange. I'm not, I'm not sure I'd really like to eat sea cucumbers, though, because, well, they're sort of tubular and brown, and not, they, look, they don't really look like something you'd really want to eat. Well, yeah, actually, I've seen them being prepared as well. They've been fished out, and then you have to boil them for hours to break down the kind of tough walls inside them and, and smoke them and, and, and dry them, and they do look pretty disgusting by the time they're done. Um, and then um, I ate them, actually, when I was at a Chinese banquet in Malaysia. And uh, before I could say no, someone had loaded my plate full of these slimy lumps. And I have to say, they were really quite hard to chew and swallow. It's disgusting. They don't really taste of anything, though. It's just that texture. Um, but uh, so I certainly, personally, couldn't imagine why you'd want to eat echinoderms. Um, but they are considered quite the delicacy. And a growing number of people around the world um, think they're fantastic. And um, the sea cucumbers are one of those foods that's supposed to be very good for you. Um, they've even made anti-wrinkle creams out of them and some people think uh, they're an aphrodisiac. So are they quite an expensive thing to buy then? Uh, yeah, so supposedly the most expensive soup in the world is something called Buddha Jumps Over the Wall. And that contains various ingredients from the sea, including sea cucumber and shark's fin. And the story goes that it smells so good that it would even tempt a vegetarian Buddhist monk to jump over the monastery wall to try some. That sounds actually really disgusting. Uh, yeah, no, I'm not, I'm not convinced by that. Not to mention the fact that it would be really bad for all the species that are involved. Um, obviously, I mean, people eating all this stuff and it being really popular and then obviously the use for anti-wrinkle creams or, you know, oh, it's great for you. I mean, is that causing problems for, for them in the wild? Um, well, yeah, the problem is, as you can imagine, um, that catching a sea cucumber is very easy. You don't have to do much more than actually just swim down and grab it off the seabed um, or, you know, dredge them up. And um, what we've seen over the past few decades, as, as there's been this increasing demand uh, for sea cucumbers, is a kind of boom and bust um, with fisheries opening up in new areas, fishermen cleaning out all they can find and then moving on to the next place. Um, so we've got this global trade kind of marching around the world, hoovering up sea cucumbers as it goes. But um, to be honest, we can find some good news in all this, um, which is that we are becoming more aware um, of what's going on and people are starting to talk about putting in measures to help protect sea cucumbers because um, they are, like we said, they're hardly the most lovable of invertebrates. Um, but uh, there are even a few marine reserves being set up specifically for sea cucumbers, including the Lao Lao Sea Cucumber Sanctuary in the Northern Mariana Islands in the Pacific. And you can check that out at the Protected Planet website that we mentioned on Naked Oceans a couple of months ago. And we'll put a link to that on our website. So obviously there's a bunch of high-priced marine species that aren't doing very well in the wild because the demand for them is increasing. So things like sharks caught for their fins, you've got the bluefin tuna that are sold for huge amounts of money in Japan to make sushi, and oysters as well, which we talked about on Naked Oceans last month. But it's not just about the things that we eat that get traded, is it? No, absolutely. Um, there's uh, also lots of stuff we'll pay top dollar for because they look pretty. Um, uh, obviously, pearls, uh, they're one of the most ancient jewels and they come uh, from the oceans. They do come from freshwater pearls as well, but uh, there are marine ones like the fabled black Tahitian pearls. Um, and like we say, with the decline in oysters around the world, wild pearls are extremely rare and amazingly expensive these days. Um, and there's another gemstone that grows in the sea, um, and that's coral. Um, since ancient times, people have made jewellery and ornaments out of of red, pink and black coral. And these aren't the sort of corals that build reefs in shallow waters, but they live in deep sea and they grow in these branching sort of tree-like skeletons um, made from really dense calcium carbonate that you can cut and polish and it really does look quite beautiful. And they, they get, those are the ones that get their Latin name from Medusa, the snake-haired gorgon in Greek myths, aren't they? 
Yeah, exactly. The story goes that her blood dropped into the sea and turned some seaweed into coral. And so there's a big group of corals called the Gorgonians. Um, but these days, many deep sea corals are being overexploited in many parts of the sea. And conservationists are urging people not to buy and wear coral anymore. Um, and there are also efforts underway to have them listed on CITES. That's the Convention on Trade in Endangered Species. Um, and that would help to regulate and monitor the trade. Um, but um, really, I think this what this comes down to is a lot about us as potential customers and consumers and we're the people who we can buy and we can decide what to eat or, or what to wear and you know and if we don't agree with exploiting corals or sea cucumbers or whatever then we can we can make our say by not buying them yeah i think there definitely is a big role for consumer people pressure to play you know pressuring supermarkets and retailers of things like fish or things like coral jewelry and things you know not buying specific things or calling for, right, we want regulation, we want the fish that you sell to be regulated by the Marine Stewardship Council, or we want to make sure it's caught safely and caught in a sustainable way. So I think definitely consumer pressure is going to play a big role in the future of that. Well, you can find out more about corals, sea cucumbers, humphead wrasse, and many more traded ocean species at our website. That's thenakedscientist.com forward slash oceans. Making waves about the underwater world. This is Naked Oceans. You're listening to Naked Oceans with Sarah Castor-Perry and Helen Scales, and this month we're talking all about trading the oceans. Well, buying and selling things that we find in the oceans isn't all about food and jewellery, and it doesn't actually necessarily have to be a bad thing for marine life. Finding value in marine species and ecosystems can sometimes help to create incentives to protect them. Around the world, efforts are underway to protect vital habitats that fringe the edges of the oceans, so mangroves, wetlands, seagrasses and so on, by capitalising on their ability to lock up carbon. We're getting used to the idea of trading forests for their carbon on land, but now there are hopes for an emerging market in blue carbon. To find out more, Helen chatted with John Bruno from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Blue carbon is what scientists um, call coastal vegetation, including mangroves, salt marsh grasses, and seagrasses. And all three types of um, coastal vegetation are wonderful at sequestering carbon dioxide. So that is pulling carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere simply through photosynthesis. They turn it into organic carbon, and they essentially move it down into their roots. Now, unlike terrestrial plants, these three types of communities accrete vertically. So they grow up vertically, sometimes at really high rates, like a centimeter or so a year. And so as they grow vertically, they just store more and more carbon dioxide that's been transformed into organic carbon below them. And they can do that for centuries or even much, much longer. And because they're in salt water, that carbon is not exposed to air, so it doesn't get broken down by bacteria and respired back into the atmosphere, both conserving blue carbon habitats and also restoring and replanting them is one of the really low-hanging fruits um, uh, as a solution towards mitigating the impacts of climate change. And the wonderful thing is it has all these add-on benefits. Um, all three habitats serve as really important nurseries for um, all kinds of fish that are caught commercially in fisheries. They're wonderful in protecting coastlines from erosion, so they'll actually mitigate the effects of climate change, such as such a sea level rise and increased intensity of storms, and they can create jobs for people. 
um, just by enhancing fisheries production. So it's a really win-win situation. So there's several groups all around the world that are trying to figure out how to fund the conservation and restoration of blue carbon um, through carbon trading markets and um, other activities and mechanisms. And because these habitats are in quite big trouble already, aren't they? We're, we're losing them at a, a really astonishing rate. Yeah, so the estimates are somewhere between 1% and 5% per year for each of these habitat types, and that's substantially higher, probably two to four times higher than we're losing um, tropical rainforest at. So we're losing them really quickly. And um, in the case of mangroves, it's primarily due to um, clearing for shrimp farms primarily, but in some cases also other types of development, um, putting up condominiums or you know, resort areas. For seagrass, the main uh, driver of loss seems to be water quality, so sediment pollution, sedimentation from terrestrial um, development, and also um, eutrophication, so the pollution by nutrients seems to be killing off seagrasses. And salt marshes, it, it's really, again, about land development, so people putting up seawalls in front of the marsh to protect their property or marshes being um, wiped out for development. They, they suffer a bit from a charisma gap, don't they, these habitats? We don't really hear much about them, and, uh, and yet they're really important. Are they as important as rainforests in terms of how much carbon they can lock away or uh, you know, other sources of, of, of carbon sinks? They're almost as important as rainforests in terms of the actual rate of sequestering carbon. So, of course, there's many times more area coverage of rainforests on the planet but these blue carbon habitats sequester carbon about 100 times faster than rainforests or other types of forests do. Um, so in terms of playing that role, it's about a one-to-one, -one, so both types of habitats play the same role. Um, but you can conserve or restore one one-hundredth of the area of a blue carbon habitat and get the same result in terms of carbon sequestration and storage. And where would you say we're at with blue carbon right now? Is this something that we're going to really need to work hard at or are we already catching on to this idea? I think at least in the scientific community and the NGO kind of development conservation community, there's been um, a much more awareness of it just in the last six or eight months. So the, the UNEP released a really fantastic report um, just before the Copenhagen conference, and there's several working groups being put together um, by Conservation International and the UN and a couple of other groups. So there seems to be um, headway going on. As far as I know, there's actually no projects being funded by any of the carbon offset markets, and that's one of the, tr the really tricky things, is that the markets aren't really designed for this kind of project. I mean, most carbon offsetting occurs through things like um, wind and solar power, um, methane recapture from landfills, and frankly, primarily through um, uh, Chinese hydroelectric projects. So the, the market is really geared towards those kind of projects. So there's a lot of work going on trying to figure out how to really kind of incorporate the blue carbon idea into that regulatory marketplace. That was John Bruno from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill giving us the lowdown on blue carbon. And it's going to be really interesting to see how this idea develops. Since we spoke to John, he's actually been working on some pilot blue carbon projects in Ecuador, helping shrimp farmers to replant areas of mangroves that were cut down to make way for their farms. And hopefully replanting will be something that the farmers can actually make money from. And just a few weeks ago, a group of leading conservationists and scientists held a meeting in Paris to discuss blue carbon and figure a way of taking it forward. So I'm sure this is something we'll be coming back to here on Naked Oceans in the future. Now, another group of marine animals that are traded around the world are seahorses. And uh, Helen, I think they're critters that are quite close to your heart, aren't they? 
Yeah, you got me. Absolutely. Um, I do love love seahorses. They are wonderful, wonderful things. But every year, millions of dead seahorses are traded as traditional Chinese medicines. They're thought to be a remedy for all sorts of conditions, from broken bones and asthma to kidney complaints and even a flagging libido. Um, and conservationists are worried that this is putting far too much pressure on some wild populations. There's also a roaring trade in live seahorses for public aquariums and for people who want to keep them at home as pets. So I paid a visit to Moat Marine Laboratory in Sarasota in Florida to find out how breeding seahorses in captivity is offering a way of cutting down the number we take from the wild every year. Here's supervisor of Moat's Seahorse Conservation Lab, Sean Garner. This is a laboratory that's on exhibit to a public aquarium, 300... Fact, we can see people walking by now, they're <laughs> peering in through the window. And waving, yes. Um, so education is key. We want to show children and adults seahorses because it is the coolest animal in the world. I'm glad you agree with me on that. There's no other animal that looks, has a head like a horse, eyes like a chameleon, pouch like a kangaroo, tail like a monkey, and it's a fish that has the only true male bird. That is the coolest. But the really main thing about this laboratory is breeding seahorses, learning how to do it, and sharing that information with other facilities so that they can breed seahorses. But we're breeding them for other zoos and aquariums around the country so that they don't have to collect from the wild. That's great. And so how long will you keep seahorses here um, before you send them off to other aquariums? We wait um, for about six months. Uh, Eight months is ideal when we ship, and we ship all around the country and hopefully around the world sooner or later. How do you send a, a seahorse? You send them by plane, I take it? <laughs> yeah. Actually, we use FedEx, but we um, put it in a bag of water, one-third um, really clean water, two-thirds pure oxygen. I put um, three to four seahorses in a bag, and I give them a toy. Because like anyone that has driven around with kids in the back, they hit each other, they mess with each other, and I don't want that stress. So I give each seahorse a toy to hitch on to, and it's kind of like their protection um, and then their triple bag, put it in a styrofoam shipping container, and then there's a heat pack or cool pack, and we ship them overnight. We've shipped a thousand or more seahorses and maybe had one problem, but it's been really good, and the horses arrived there perfect. What we're looking at are the brood stock, and the brood stock means that they're animals just for breeding. They're here, they're my best seahorses right now. They're the studs. They're the studs um, and the queens, I guess. Um, They have good genetics. Um, They're usually wild-caught. Now, I'm legally allowed to take a few wild-caught seahorses uh, from the environment. So really, all they're here doing is breeding and eating, and um, it happens in the morning. They go up in the water column. They either do their mating dance or they transfer eggs, and um, then they kind of leave each other alone the rest of the day. And uh, how often will they actually have babies? The male will get pregnant, of course. Uh, his gestation is about 25 days. He will release the babies, and pretty much the next day or two days after, he's pregnant again. And this happens pretty much his entire life, from six months all on up to about four years and he is pregnant most of his life. Now, he gets pregnant so much, he can actually fake being pregnant. This is news to me. <laughs> yeah, he can actually inflate his pouch with water and tell his girlfriend or his wife, I'm pregnant already. I can't accept your eggs this month. 
and she will actually dump her eggs on the ground, which is terrible because it takes 40% more energy to create the eggs than to just date them. Wow, that's crazy. Okay, yeah. so we have this. These are the, the moms and dads, basically. Yep. yep. And then they, then the babies come, and then these are the guys over here. These are some of the newborns in this tank. Well, we haven't got any tiny ones right now, but, yeah, but these ones here. Yeah, we didn't have seahorse babies last week, but we had some two weeks ago, and we're looking at them right now. It's a brood of probably a hundred. Um, we're, we're looking at Hippocampus erectus, the line seahorse. Yeah, and so what they're doing is they're circulating around the tank. They're in a specially designed tank called a chrysal or gyro. Uh, and it's a tank designed for animals that are planktonic, that are floating in the ocean, or we like to tell the kids planktonic means go with the flow. Um, so they're circulating, and they're eating the smallest food that we have, and we actually grow plankton here, and um, they're eating it, and they're swimming, and that's all they're doing right now. And in this tank here, there is some equally as tiny animals, but they're a bit older, aren't they? Yeah, these are um, Hippocampus zostera, or the pygmy seahorse, and a very small animal. One inch is pretty much max. Um, they only have 10 to 20 babies at a time, but they have one of the largest babies out of any other seahorse, and... Um, they're pretty smart. They actually are smart enough. When we try to take them out of their parent tank, they can run away from the net. They know a net is danger. They're very smart animals. I love these guys. They're so cute. They are amazingly cute. <laughs> and they're so tiny, I can hardly see them. It's awesome. Seahorses are pretty sensitive, aren't they, to, to their conditions in, in which they, they're living. Like the water has to be the right salinity, temperature, and so on. And, and they're kind of susceptible to getting diseases, too. Is that that's the case, right? Yeah, like any animal, they can get stressed out. Just like humans, you get stressed out. And when you get stressed out, you're more prone to getting a cold or the flu or what have you. So, yeah, seahorses are very prone to diseases and bacterias. So we try to provide the most calm environment for them. And we found out lately that sounds are huge in the seahorse world, that loud sounds, motor sounds, and vibrations from the, the world um, causes seahorses to become stressed out, which in turn gets them not to reproduce as much and not live as long. When we built this lab, we specially chose the pumps, all the lighting, all the filtration, so that, you know, everything is vibration-free, there's not a lot of metallic sounds in the water, and it's really, hopefully, proven to be a great thing. You know, a lot of zoos and aquariums have big tanks that have really strong pumps and concrete and vibrations. They have a lot of problems keeping seahorses alive. Well, we keep them alive, and we breed them in the thousands. So I think the vibrations and the sounds are really important to seahorses' survival. You've been operating on seahorses? <laughs> Not me, but we have a vet that actually did one of the first laser surgeries on a seahorse. We had one seahorse a year or two ago that grew a tumor on its tail. What we did is we grabbed the animal and we actually put it under with under anesthesia. Oh my gosh, how did you do that? <laughs> we took it out of the water and put it on a tray and ran a tube into its mouth that pumped anesthetic water. And it went right past his gills and put him under. He was dry, but he was still breathing and he was knocked unconscious. And so the vet got the laser out, turned the setting to the lowest setting because he was so worried how frail a seahorse is and tried to take the tumor off didn't work so he raised the level up a little bit more no go he had to raise the level up so high it was the same as turtle shells and then he was able to take the tumor off 
And so we took that seahorse and put him back in his regular water. He woke up and he survived another year or two after that. It was, it was amazing. It was so neat. That is very cool. <laughs> seahorse Hospital, here we are. <laughs> yeah, we'll do anything to keep him alive. It's, it's important. Laser surgery for seahorses. That is pretty crazy stuff, I have to say. Well, we've certainly got a lot better at keeping these sensitive creatures in aquariums. And projects like this are doing a brilliant job of both educating people about seahorses and at the same time helping to reduce our impact on them in the wild. That was seahorse keeping guru Sean Garner at the Moat Marine Laboratory in Florida. Well, time's nearly up for this episode of Naked Oceans. But before we go, let's find out who we've got for our Critter of the Month. Uh, My name is Mark Baumgartner. I work at the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution in Massachusetts, uh, and I am a biological oceanographer. And if I were a critter, a marine critter, I would be a North Atlantic right whale. The reason I would be a North Atlantic right whale is because I like to eat. And uh, the job, the most important job of a right whale, I think, is eating. They eat a lot. They eat often. They, uh, they have a funny way of eating. They uh, have very large heads, and basically their mouth is a net, and they catch plankton. And the things that they feed on are about the size of a flea. And so they need to eat a lot. They, in fact, we estimate at, uh, have to eat one to two billion of these creatures every day. These creatures are called copepods. They're little crustaceans, a lot like a crab or a lobster, but much, much, much smaller, size of a flea. So in terms, so to put that in terms uh, that we can understand, that's about 3,000 Big Macs every day, uh, or the weight equivalent of a Volkswagen Beetle in food every single day. So I like to eat, right whales like to eat, that's great. In the ocean, it's, it's, it's eating or it's being eaten. And so, and size has a lot to do with whether you're going to get eaten or not. And for the whales, they have very few predators because they're very large. And so, as a whale, you would be less prone to being eaten by anything, but, uh, but you'd get to eat all the time. So, uh, that's not to say that right whales don't have problems. They have uh, some serious conservation issues in, in the North Atlantic. They tend to get hit by ships and uh, get uh, entangled in fishing gear. And because their population is so seriously endangered, there's only about 400 right whales in the North Atlantic. Uh, This is a big problem for them. Just losing one or two animals from the population, particularly females, is a big problem. So life is not all uh, uh, fun and games for right whales. Uh, They have these interactions with humans that uh, tend to be not so good for them. But there's a lot of work being done on that front. and There's a lot of uh, goodwill on the part of the shipping industry and the fishing industry. Uh, It's pretty clear that there is a problem, and people really want to solve the problem. There's a lot of good people, uh, both scientists, uh, government scientists, policymakers, and people from the industry that want to improve the prospects of North Atlantic right whales. And there's been a lot of good work done, uh, including moving shipping lanes and changes to fishing practices. So I think the outlook for right whales is actually quite good. The population has increased over the last uh, decade. When I started uh, studying right whales, they used to say there's probably only about 300 whales, and now there are 400 whales, which has given me a lot of hope for for the species. That was Mark Baumgartner from the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution in Massachusetts, introducing us to the extremely rare and, by the sounds of it, extremely hungry North Atlantic right whales. You can check out lots more marine critters at our website. That's thenakedscientist.com forward slash oceans. 
Well, that's it for this month's Naked Oceans. A huge thank you to Mark Spaulding, Kristen Tulecki, Sean Garner, John Bruno and Mark Baumgartner. Tune in next time when we'll be diving beneath the waves again for more news and chat. Until then, you can keep in touch with us on Twitter. We're at Naked Oceans or drop us an email. The address is nakedoceans at thenakedscientist.com and you'll find more info on this show and all the others at thenakedscientist.com forward slash oceans. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time. Naked Oceans is produced by the Naked Scientists and supported by the Save Our Seas Foundation. For more information, look them up online at saveourseas.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.